0: Charlie Foren is a well-known, award-winning Canadian biographer, novelist, essayist. Welcome uh, once again to the Bibliophile. Thank you, Nigel. We're here to talk about uh, literary tourism. Several years ago, you were up in uh, Wingham, Ontario, to write a piece for uh, the Walrus magazine, and you played the literary tourist. That's exactly what I did.
1: It was to explore, to inhabit, to spend time in Alice Monroe country. And Alice Monroe is most of your listeners will know, is a Canadian writer with a very identifiable landscape. It's a a couple of small towns in southern Ontario on the shores of Lake Huron. And I'd guess 90% of her stories over her long, distinguished career have taken place within a 20-mile radius of each other. So it's quite easy to, if you wish, go to Alice Monroe Country.
0: One of the things that Alice Monroe is able to do by focusing on that location is to get to the universal yeah so in a way it's sort of a what a contradiction in the sense that you can get to everyday life in this specific place. but when you were there, how did you connect with her? what places did you visit?
1: I started in the village of Wingham, which is where she was born and raised, a town I guess you call it around two thousand people and it actually has quite a lovely history. It was briefly the sort of epicenter of a local television and radio cultures they had their own station radio station their own tv station which only closed a few years ago which is impressive for a town that size i spent some time in the town museum at the town library uh, needless to say they're all very proud of alice and Rowe. they have a small alice and Rowe collection there's this tiny little alice and Rowe garden right next to i think it is the library you can go visit that but what was far more illustrative and enlightening was to go to find her house where she was raised and you can again track it from the stories you have to cross over a bridge and go to sort of the wrong side of wingham wrong side of the tracks well proverbially i think so yeah it was sort of lower town when she was young a very pivotal experience of her childhood was a flood that literally left the town an island isolated because it's it's very low around it and her family were on a sort of farm below the the town we're not talking like it's up on a mountain or anything or a mm-hmm. hill. but it was lower down, and it was more itinerant people. It was poor people that lived down there. So uh, I was able to walk, literally just stopping and asking people. He, just, you know, do you remember Alice Monroe? You have to use her maiden name and the family's farm, and they all know where it was because it was at the end of a dead end. And I saw the 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 site, but there's somebody in there, so I didn't knock on their door but it was enough for me just to, i remember just to walk the couple of kilometers that she had to walk as a girl to get to school those stories particularly in the lives of girls and women are about that walk are about those divisions are about those bifurcations even inside a small town and as you say i mean it, so much about her work is a challenge to the perceptions or the globalized aspirations of a lot of literature she she insists and she lays the claim and i think she fulfills it that you can take the tiniest most innocuous ordinary landscape and you can make it full of the most dramatic, tragic narratives. There is no exception. Humanity is everywhere, evenly spaced out. And, and to an extent, spending those three days I did down there in her country, in her, in her world, but of course not, physically though, was, was a real, for me, reminder of that. Just the fact that tragedy and... Well, universality.
0: ...important things in life happen everywhere. Would you say there was a sort of a contrast between this quiet town and the momentous things that can happen in someone's
1: emotional life? Well, I suppose that's, on the surface, true. True. But to mistake a sort of placid external quality with, with, with a lack of an in, inner turmoil is to misunderstand the human heart. You know, Michael Ondaatje said the human heart is an organ of fire, and that's every human heart. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if it's in downtown Toronto or in Mumbai or if it's in Wingham, Ontario. Every human being carries inside him or her endless conflicts and contradictions and yearnings and aspirations and disappointments and dreams. And, of course, the fact that you might be, I don't know, a barber or an elementary school teacher in a small town, does not mean you're, you're those things operate on a lesser amplitude. They're still there, and I'm almost critic. I am in fact criticizing myself here when I say to you that I had to sort of learn that by going to her town. That I, you can get into a rut where you think if it's not a, a grand narrative of. Napoleonic wars or transmigration of a Salman Rushdie, or whatever it is, all those yeah, kind of external bigness bigness that somehow that means that if it lacks exactly that external bigness, and somehow it's small, there's no such thing as small if you're writing honestly about human nature, it's all big.
0: So, could you explain then, you know, when you went on that walk, mm-hmm. how? Did it affect you? Did, it, did you feel closer to her? Did you have sort of an aha moment where you could sort of connect your reading of her books to the reality and feel the tension or what, what? Sure, I did. I
1: did on a couple levels. I did on that walk because there's no substitute for geography if the stories are geographically rooted, and hers definitely are. So again, to go back to that girl walking along the unpaved road to get to the town, through the, and then having, if I remember correctly, and it's been a couple of years since I wrote the piece, just to walk up through the nicer streets and there are a few nice streets of nice old, you know, substantial Ontario homes. So she would have had to do that, and she does that in the stories. And if you walk in now, it's unchanged. It's still that road out there is still a pretty modest road, and the houses are still nice. So you can kind of understand how a girl is internalizing class difference and internalizing towny versus sort of slightly outsider. Again, things that to a, to a big city person seem ridiculous, these subdivisions or these... But again, there's, the scale is doesn't matter. Um, the other thing I did was simply by showing up, simply by asking some questions, by presenting myself, people start coming forward and saying, oh, I went to school with Alice, you know, oh, I've known her for 60 years, and you're listening, you're talking to them, and they have some good stories, but more of what you're seeing is you're seeing her character. You're hearing them, th- their accent, you're, you're hearing their diction, you're, you're seeing how they carry themselves and what their concerns are. Well, a very, very old friend of hers was been a farmer all his life, and he described riding bicycles with her along the farm roads, you know, so I guess it would be it 70 years ago now. And I right away felt I was in the presence of one of her characters. Not to say she modeled anything on this man, but just no. the, in the largest sense. We almost saw what
0: she saw yes. to create her fiction.
1: I think so. I think so. And I think if you drive along those roads, if you drive you know down from Wingham to Clinton or over to Goderich, or even up to Kincardine, which is sort of the four points of her landscape... She had this extraordinary story and too much happiness that, that takes place in Kincardine. And if you read it, it's about a woman whose husband is murdered, a girl, I think it is, I've forgotten. It's a terribly sad and powerful story, and it, it's straight out of Chekhov or Tolstoyan. And then you go into Kincardine, it's just a little slip of a town. You know, there are thousands of towns like it anywhere, but she made it feel monumental. And that's, again, that whole lesson of micro and macro. What is little is never little, and what is sometimes large is actually quite small. It all depends. It all comes back to great talent. So being a literary tourist, which is something I, I do, I remember Alice Monroe. I, I ended up having lunch with her, and she told me she's, she's not a literary tourist, but she did once go to the hometown of a beloved American writer. And she said that she didn't find a single monument to him. So all she did, it was somewhere in Ohio, anything, at the end of her day there, and she did exactly what I did. She walked around, she internalized, she took in the smells and sounds of his town. And she wrote a note... <laughs> Saying you have a great writer in this town, you should celebrate him. And she slipped out of the door of the city hall because as she was leaving, which is interesting, because you know Alice Munro is someone who likes to be very anonymous. But she found the anonymity of this American writer in his hometown unacceptable. The, <laughs> at the very least, there should have been some way, something there for him. So it's an interesting conversation between a writer and a landscape. Because, of course, the other thing that's complicating this is that the writers' towns, Alice Moreau's towns, are not exactly Wingham. They're not exactly Goderich. And it's a mistake to assume that she just overlays her fictional town onto a real town. So you're never talking about that exactly. But you're never talking about when you talk about Dickens's London or Joyce's Dublin. Mm -hmm. Of course, they're primarily in their heads, right, and in their imaginations. But our desire to still go see and go find and go explore the physical what would you call it, simulacrum or, uh, or mm. parallel? It's de- it runs deep with lovers of books.
0: It's finally, too, it's, it's like paying homage to someone who's meant something to you, I suppose.
1: Oh, very much so. You, you know, books are such a personal reading experience. Once the authors finish the book, the book becomes the readers, and the reader sits in a chair or lies in bed, and it's a very, very intimate exchange. And the reader applies whole new layerings and colorations to the book, and it's their book, and it becomes their town. But, of course, you still are, as a reader, and I'm more a reader than a writer still, you're in awe of that book. You're in awe of what that writer's done. So when you go, if you decide to go and try and sort of find it, it, it's a very interesting conversation because you're looking for the real version of a fictional landscape which you have yourself half-created.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a triangular. You're honing in on a destination that's not there in reality. It's sort of suspended. It's floating. Suspended. Yes, yes. It's
1: floating between between the author and the reader, between reality and fiction, between the imagination and between whatever you want to call it, geography, let's say. Where would you have uh, lunch? We went to the same restaurant that she loves to go to in Goderich Square. I've forgotten the name of it. There's the Alice Monroe table at the back, and we sat there and uh, had a lovely time together. And even in Goderich, you know, people... Just say, hi, Alice. Hi, Alice. Yeah, she's She has staked her ground, and this is very interesting ground. She does not want anyone to make a fuss about her, but is she ever there?
0: Great. Well, thanks for taking us there. My pleasure. I've been speaking with Charlie Foreign, who... What are you working on right
1: now? Just finishing a novel, so people can come find my novel if they want. In okay. Is it set anywhere in particular? Well, it's a bit hard. It's going to be set in Hong Kong. Mostly. Okay. Yes, okay. But, Great. Well, we'll look forward to uh, reading that. Thanks again. Pleasure, Nigel.